the teaching text we'll be reading together today is Psalm 51. If you have a shed Bible, you can find that starting on page 526. All right, let's read together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The word of the Lord. So there was a recent APA study on secret keeping, on the human conscience, research that developed 38 common categories for secrets and secret keeping. Now, in these categories that people hold, they range anywhere from infidelity, and infidelity, financial misconduct, hidden pregnancies or paternities, illegal behavior, and a couple easy ones like a surprise party you're hiding from somebody. Now, of these 38 categories, they found that 97% of people have a secret in at least one of these categories. Not too surprising. But what is, is that the average person has one or more in 13 categories. We are people who hold on to things. Now secrets, they're not necessarily sins as we would think about them, but there's a good chance that most of us at this very moment are thinking something internally like, just don't make me think about that thing. Or I don't know if I can bear this coming to light. Or I'm not even sure God knows about that thing or even wants to. And it's in these moments when I get in that mode that I hear my mom's voice from childhood, which is normally full of like nurture and love, quoting to me Numbers 32, be sure your sin will find you out. Still with me. And maybe more than just found out, these things leak out of us eventually. You know, I was talking to a counselor friend of mine who was talking about some of the behind the scenes neurological work on secret keeping and confession. And he's saying, from the moment that we have that stomach drop in the pit here, that we might be found out or there might be consequences for this thing, our limbic system kicks in and makes a plan to protect and to hide and to survive. 
So there's things working beneath the surface that want to keep these things hidden, but there is a cost to that inner work. We build years of numbing and avoidance and protection strategies, and we deform patterns that are now part of our story. And now we wouldn't say, I don't know if I'm, I'm not living a lie, but I'm certainly not living fully in the truth either. We are a people who need to confess. Not just big things, secret things, but daily things, patterns and postures and tendencies, the things we've done, the things we've left undone, the things we'd rather not do and get beneath the surface of why we would rather not do them. We move into confession as a place where we join the living God in forming new patterns of freedom and restoration in us and for the world. And so that's where we wanna start our Lenten journey. As Kyle noted earlier, we're moving through these six weeks of Lent toward Easter in this series we're calling Let Us Pray, where we're going to posture ourselves and participate in prayers in the scriptures that put us in a place to receive God's mercy in its fullness has culminated in Easter and allows us to dig into this Lenten season. Now, if Lent is new to you, it's the season that's, that moves us towards Easter. I'd love to talk to you more about that later. You can check out our website for some resources as well. It's not just a Catholic thing. And also know that this is how we are going to look and move towards Easter together, a season of penitence and repentance and recognizing our need. This season itself pushes against our modern sensibilities to move through anything that is uncomfortable towards something that is good or at least numbs what we're trying to avoid. And Lent makes us sit there for six weeks. Lent formally started on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and if you're like me, Wednesday to the first Sunday in Lent is always kind of a trial period, right? I mean, I, this is not formal. There are some pastors around here who wouldn't do it this way, but I try a few things between Wednesday and Sunday because this is when we publicly start Lent together. So if you haven't gotten on the train yet, come on, let us pray together and posture ourselves. There is still yet time for us. So we begin with confession as a prayer and a practice, taking a posture of neediness, allowing our repentance then to be shaped by the contrite prayers of the psalmist as we find them in Psalm 51 today, as was read for us. Now, this psalm helps us think about confession, so we're gonna confess together, and it actually models it so well that I think it offers for us what I call the confession progression, which sounds like a hidden track on Usher's 2004 album, Confessions. But we're not gonna dwell there, are we? No, we're gonna move that off. Let's head to our text. We're looking at Psalm 51, the original Confessions. David's version. It opens with this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. As terrifying as it might seem to confess, to bear what is inside to God and to one another, 
This is a peculiar place to begin because it models for us in this progression of confession that we confess first with confidence, that we begin in a place that is reliant on God's love and mercy. It does not begin with us or what we did or what we said or what we didn't do. The psalmist brilliantly situates this work in God's character. So we can confess confidently. You can go back one slide, would Jaden? We see this in, in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, before anything is said, according to your unfailing love. Not according to my story or how I think or have believed, but according to who you have revealed yourself to be, Lord. Our repentance is set firmly in God's character and revelation of grace. So often, we are, the thing we are confessing or the things we're confessing, they seem overwhelming as if there is no way out. The psalmist says in a verse or two, my sin is always before me, as if I can't see past it. But what we do when we begin with confessing with confidence is we situate our brokenness in the vast landscape of God's grace, getting the altitude over time as we practice this to recognize God's mercy is an ocean. And I cannot put more drops in than God can handle. As Hebrews 4 said, as Joe led us in earlier, we approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy. So that's where we begin our confession journey. Not in shame or the pit of our stomach, but because God, you have unfailing love and mercy's unending. So we begin to confess with confidence. Now, maybe I'm hearkening my memory back a little ways. When our kids were even younger, they would often fight with one another, poke each other, pinch each other, whatever. You've, you may have been familiar with this. And so when you get upon a situation like this as a parent, you break it up, Everybody catches their breath, and then it's time to do what? Say, I'm sorry. Now, this plays out with adults too, but you put the two parties together, and the offending party, you say, can you please apologize, and what will they do? Sorry. Just one word, the look away, the denial, so, sorry. If you can even, even understand what they're mumbling, sorry. And the work then is to tenderly and with grace, encourage the offending party to look into the tearful eyes of the one they hurt and say, I'm sorry for hitting you and ripping your coloring page and calling you stupid. And to see it. Or if we would dare to do this as adults, I'm sorry for telling your secret. I'm sorry for misrepresenting you behind your back to our boss. I'm sorry for selling you out. I'm sorry for not returning your phone calls. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Confessing with specificity is our second step in this progression. The psalmist boldly continues and specifically names their sin. Knowing that they will be met by mercy, naming sin in generality can be placating to the conscience, can't it? 
And yet naming sin with specificity is often humiliating or convicting, and yet freeing in such a way that generalities cannot bring forth. When something is named in its fullness and is understood between parties, a freedom exists, an opportunity exists that doesn't happen when it's simply sorry. I could have done it, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. That's a very different thing. It has very different potential for our healing. And so we confess with specificity. Psalm 51 is traditionally attributed to the words that David used, spoke, or sang when confronted by the prophet Nathan with his assault on Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. This happens in a public setting in the text. And so there's no hiding for him. In fact, I think that's why this text has multiple words for the the sin and the web of brokenness that emanated out from what could be seen as maybe one thing. Psalm 51 has three different words for, for sin or for offenses against God, and we see them show up in the text. Uh, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, and for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. This is verse one and two. Now, it may just seem like, like David has a thesaurus on his tablet and just is trying not to be boring as he writes his repentance. But instead, what we actually see as we dig into the Hebrew, which we don't have too much time to do now, is we have three different things, three different words that are meaning different, uh, different things. And so the first one is sin. And, it's, and this in Hebrew connotes a web of consequences that flow forth from the brokenness. So he's confessing an act, a thought, a deed, and then everything that comes after that. Remember, our secrets leak out into the world. This type of sin, seen broadly here, is like someone who after 30 years confesses an affair to a spouse that happened all the way back then that resulted in a hidden child. So that's one thing, but it's years of things. It's an identity, it's a web of relationships that is built on something that's ultimately false and a heart that is divided now between multiple sets of children and lovers. It's never just one thing. And the psalmist knows this, and so we begin with this word, sin. Second, we get iniquity in the text, which shows up three different times. This is where we talk about both the sin and the punishment, the effects of it, that uh, the, the curse of it, if you will, the generational patterns that are produced by this brokenness. In this case, we think of Solomon, who has wives from all over the world and gets in all sorts of trouble with his lusting, wandering eyes. This is the thing that's being repented of for Psalm 51. And we get transgression. This is a a word that talks about kind of a a break with God. Like, hey, I was on your team, but I'm gonna enter the transfer portal, I'm out. Like, I, I know we were doing this thing together, but I'm gonna go it on my own. There's, there's a break in relationship, a break in trust fundamentally, which is one of the metaphors we see in the Genesis narrative about, I, I got this. So there's specificity in this text, even if it doesn't show up in the English translations that we read, because specificity leads to freedom. 
And so for us, as we model confession together weekly, paired with assurance, there's an opportunity for us then to speak in our hearts and then daily, from this week forward, say, Lord, this is the thing, and as best I understand it, here are some of the relational ramifications. Here are the ways I don't want this to show up in the people I influence, children, grandchildren, people at work. And God, this is the the break in trust that this is reflective of. Specific, full repentance we lay before God. Specificity. Now, you may know it's an even year, it's 2024, which means it's an election year, which means over the course of the next number of months, we are going to get modeled for us everything wrong in this conversation. We already do if we pay attention, but it is gonna get cranked up so that we know it's hard for us individually to model what we don't see done well culturally. In fact, we're gonna see people sidestepping all sorts of responsibility and certainly sidestepping specificity out of a sense of fear and deceit a scarcity mentality. We see anti-confession modeled for us every day in the political sphere. So much so that without a chance to be honest and repent and name with specificity what was wrong, repair and progress really get taken off the table. And we recognize then a tension, as Kyle was pointing out uh, to our children, that there's something that happens in our culture, or something that happens here that isn't modeled, is totally against the grain of what we see modeled around us. So much so that I think we can clarify where confession pushes against two different cultural scripts and offers us a new way. One, this first script, when we talk about things like confessing, being open before God and others with our brokenness, one of the scripts it pushes against is this idea that we're just, we're just diamonds with a little dust on us. We're just, and we didn't put that dust there, all we need is a little brush off. We're good, don't put that on me, I'm just a diamond. And the other narrative, which in many of knowing our stories gets propagated by the church in its history is that we are a terrible wretch whose salvation is unsure and God looks at us promoting shame and guilt, wondering if Jesus really should have come for you. It's easy to be pulled into one of these camps based on our history in social circles. This first, where we are just the beautiful diamond with no need other than a dusting, it offers a false sense of agency and pride and vanity. But underneath, it offers a deep, festering insecurity. Because behind the profile and the posts, we know that that's just not true that the heart is easily deceived. And we travel with mixed motives that we can't sort out. And confession also pushes against this other script which leaves us in a cycle of shame and self-flagellation and harm 
leaves us up at night wondering if God even knows or cares. And our confession pushes against these two things so powerfully that this narrative we have of God hating us gets confronted time after time by the words of assurance. And so let me say them again. God is not unsure about you. God's mind is not made up wondering how you're going to act or behave this week. There is love unending for you. There is security in God's mercy. That's ultimately where this psalm takes us. But not before. There's some transformation. There is some change. So the third step on our confession progression is that we we confess for transformation so that something actually changes. Right, the reason that I usually start Lent on Sunday is because I try a bunch of things and fail in my own power Wednesday through Sunday. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about inner transformation, a renovation of the soul that's available to us through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. We get this in a couple of these texts we'll look at in just a minute, but the first being, yet you desired faithfulness, is verse six, in the womb, You taught me wisdom in the secret place. This this, this idea there's somewhere inside that God is working and renewing and renovating us. In the New Testament, we get a Greek word for this called metanoia. It's where we get pictures of a total change of posture, of a reorientation of the human heart from something to another, that, that a different direction in life is possible. It moves us from what classical theologians would call in in Latin this incurvatus and say, this idea of a human being doubled over on themselves. And this is no way to live, right? We are not Kelsey and McCaffrey trying to make it over the end zone line. We have a different way to live. This is exhausting. And so Christ is offering us not only a new way, but a whole different posture in the cross in the distribution of his meal to us. A whole different posture. And you may say, yeah, but this this is the sign of the cross, like where Jesus died. Yes, because the things we are invited to in our confession and being assured is that death is followed by resurrection. That there isn't another way. It helps us reframe those words of Jesus, come and die. Yes, that's the thing we're signing up for in confession. To put to death the the journey we've been on and receive a new one. To experience resurrection. To not let our transformation be shortcut by avoidance and sidestepping. We confess for transformation. Let's look at a couple more verses in Psalm 51. This is in verse 10 and 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Don't cast me away. Have your presence here. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
What I love is we get these words through here. We had secret place in verse six, and then in 10 through 12, we get heart, renew, restore, sustain. These are renovation words. These are words of change that we get to be transformed in our inner being through this practice of confession and receiving assurance. Things will not stay as they have been. And that's a narrative I at least take into every new practice. Will this actually work? You may get the sense that I've tried and failed at a lot of things in my life, that's very true. And what that's left in me is a sense of will will anything ever change? Is it even possible? And what confession offers us is a continual rhythm that gives us the elevation to see God's mercy in a new way, which God responds to our openness with the filling of the Spirit to change and transform what we cannot do on our own. And so the fourth step Confess and believe the good news. Receive the good news. We can approach with confidence because this is where the text leads us. To a place where we get to touch and taste and feel and breathe in a new way of being. We get to believe the words of Jesus because who else says while people are murdering them, forgive them. While they're hurting me. This is the same Jesus who we talked about earlier who we can approach with alongside the throne of grace with confidence. Christ is with us. And we continue as Hebrews chapter 10. God says their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more because they have been forgiven and the sacrifice is no longer necessary. No longer do you need to hurt and shame yourself. No longer is an external sacrifice needed for your consolation. It has been laid on Jesus Christ and Christ alone so that we can be free. God is not unsure about you. God loves you and forgives you. Imagine with me, though, a confessing church. A people who take this invitation seriously, who no longer feel stuck or dwelling in their sin, who get to be renewed daily, weekly, collectively, This is a church, friends, who can step confidently into where God is calling them. To invite the world to consider a different Jesus than maybe they have been handed. To with freedom and confidence move into the world for God's glory. So we confess and believe. We confess to God. We confess to one another. That's a tricky part of this. There's a withward dimension to this practice as well. We see this real specifically in James 5, where it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
So yes, there is the direct confession piece. Yes, there's a corporate confession piece that we practice together. And yes, there's a place for us to have a confessor and a place to show up and offer forgiveness and say, I'm sorry. So is there someone in your life who you feel you can actually say your confession to? Is there someone you can not say everything, but say what needs to be said with specificity and honesty? There's a, there's a tactile, physical nature to that that I think is it's sacramental in nature for God knows that we need things to touch and taste and see and be washed by to get an embodied feeling of God's mercy. And so one would be confessing to one another. This is some tough questions. And so that's why we practice it. We don't just have it. We take a step, building honesty and confidence every time we confess and every time we are met with assurance. Confession as a practice is incomplete without the assurance of pardon, of God's grace and mercy. So we will not tear those apart. So don't fall into that temptation. I'd encourage you to grab one of those sheets Kyle talked about or grab on our website. It will offer some words of assurance even when we don't have good words for ourselves. And so I think the invitation at the end of this is both to to dance this dance, the confession progression. Work it through, get creative. And see what God can do. Not as a test, but as humbly saying, Lord, this is what I've got. And I know it's not leading anywhere. Would you take me somewhere new? And so the invitation really is then is to confess and believe and receive from the Lord a new heart, a new posture, a new confidence, and to receive then who you are, the body of Christ. And so it was Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed who gathered his disciples around as if to give them a final metaphor and to bless them. And so he does and he takes the bread, the beginning of their meal. He says, this is my body. It's broken for you. And so we acknowledge that through what is broken, we can be made whole. It was after they'd eaten together that Jesus takes the cup and he blesses it. He says, this is the new promise in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness, the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? God, it is a good and joyful thing to know that any time and in any place we can give thanks to you. For you are God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
the one who forgives, the one who heals. And so we praise you. We join our voices with the angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. We sing holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so God, we give you this praise and would you send your Holy Spirit? Would it make this bread that we break together and this cup that we bless together, would it make unto us these things, the communion of the body of Christ, that we would know in our being that we are forgiven and freed and that there is nothing we could do or say or hide that is outside of your great love for us, that can separate us from your love of in Christ. And so would you fill us and nourish us, oh God. We are grateful and we are in need. So would you meet us and fill us. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. So we celebrate together these four tables around the room where you can come and receive elements up front. It's also a space to pray. Maybe for you today it's a space to confess. Maybe it's a space to make a plan to confess, to get something out of the hiddenness of the heart and into the light, knowing that God has and will make a way that our posture can change. Because with open hands, we can come and receive. And we speak this reality in these three winsome phrases that the church has used for centuries. And we say them together, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So come friends, take and receive and know that you are forgiven and free.